I stand up here and I button my coat back up, I felt like I'm a lawyer in some courtroom somewhere, and you know, I have to show honor and reverence to the judge, which I am, really, because he's the judge, right? So uh, it's, um, sorry, a little, little humor, solemn moment there. Um, today we're going to be in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 26. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 28. You know, I struggled this week as I, I prayed to God to ask Him to give me a message to deliver to His people and to those who may be listening. And I um, I struggled because I, I I really want to finish the book of Acts because we've been not in that book for like three years. And it seems like as we've progressively gotten closer to the end of the book of Acts, I felt more inclined to go a different path many Sundays. Maybe it's because we're so close to the end, I'm trying to milk it for everything it's worth. But as I prayed, I said, you know, I knew we were going to do communion this week, and, and, and God um, shared with me that uh, perhaps maybe I should preach about communion. You know, very rarely have I ever preached about communion when we do communion. I typically wait until we're about to take communion, and then we open up 1 Corinthians 11, and we, we go through this... Uh, uh, passage of that Paul remembers the, the sequence of events from the Gospels, and, and we talk about about the, the bread and the, and the cup and what it means, but, you know, I thought this week as, as I was praying and searching that God would give me a message to give to you guys about communion, and I, as, as I studied and prepared and prayed, I, I really felt led to this passage, one, because it's short. And I don't mean that to be in a tongue-in-cheek or sarcastic fashion. I mean short, because the gospel message is short, sweet, and to the point. And, and, and what we really have to understand is that if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved. Case closed, period, in the sentence. There's a lot in that sentence, though, that has to be examined. But I thought the best place for us to be, that I thought the Lord revealed to me today, was Matthew chapter 26. Verses 26 through 28. So let's let's read from the scriptures this morning the words from the scriptures that are in the words written in red from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And it says here in verse 26 of Matthew 26, it says, While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after blessing, after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for forgiveness of sins. Some translations say for remission of sins. But in verse 29, it says, But I say to you, I will not drink this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you and my Father's kingdom. Let's pray together. Most gracious Father, we ask you today, as we go through these verses, there are so many things we could we could speak on, so many different principles we could speak on. But the outline that you give me, I pray that we do justice to the Word of God this morning. I pray not only do we hear the words, but we listen to what the words are saying, so that we can examine ourselves appropriately to find if we are worthy to partake of the Lord's communion. I pray that you... Fill me with the Spirit this morning with a special anointing of the Holy Ghost to preach the word of the Lord to not only those present, but those watching, streaming live with us also. And I pray that if there's one 
person out there who does not know you as Lord and Savior, that today will be the day of reckoning. Today they will have a come to Jesus meeting. Today they will bow the knee and their tongue will confess you as Lord. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. So let's give a little background here. It says we, we have to go to the, the passage prior to that, starting in verse 20, but if we really want to go back to the Passover, we go all the way back to Exodus, but we're not going to go that far back, but I just want to give you a little bit of context of where they're at and what they're doing. Jesus gave his disciples some instructions that says, go to this place and tell them uh, that we're going to prepare, the, the, the room would be prepared for them, and so they go, and now, now the evening time comes, and they're there, and it says in the passage before this, they were reclined at the table. Well, it, as was the custom way back in the day, they had a, and I was doing some studying about this myself, they had like a U-shaped table. And, and they, they didn't have chairs and sit at a table like we do. It was a very, very small table. It probably was only a foot and a half to two feet off the, off the ground. And they had pillows and cushions and couch-type environments that would allow them to recline. So they were basically, if we weren't streaming online, I'd probably lay down right now and show you. But, but they basically laid perpendicular to the table and kind of propped themselves up with an elbow. So they were reclined at the table because a, a meal would sometimes take an hour or two hours to get through an entire meal, whether it was the Passover or not. They really enjoyed fellowship and communion with each other. Uh, I, I doubt during the significance of this specific, this specific meal that they would joke and carry on, but but me, you know, I, I get on to my children when they when they don't sit at the table and act right. I get on to them when they when they bounce around and they want to laugh and carry on because you know might choke or something, but in reality, I was taught, and I'm sure many of you were taught, that dinner table is no place to mess around. And if you messed around, you were probably severely punished. But think about this, uh, this dynamic we have today, and go back to those days where they reclined, and the fellowship meal together, whether it was the Passover or not, was a time of fellowship and communion. So in reality, there probably was joking. There probably was lighthearted conversation as they recollected not only the day's events, but the, the, fa the family events that had taken place. So this is a family atmosphere. Jesus is with his disciples, his family. And what we have to understand about this specific context here is Jesus is preparing them for the last Passover. Not that it's the last time they would ever celebrate the high holy day of Passover, or not even that it was the last time that they might partake of the Passover, but he was trying to show them and set the tone in this foreshadowing event that this was the last Passover that he would be with them. Because he was, and he is, the Passover lamb. So, <clears throat> if we also have to understand that this last Passover, the reason this is significant is because Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I come to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So with this Passover, Jesus is going to be that sacrificial lamb here. In chronology of our story here, that's going to be led to the cross at Calvary. So as they lay reclining at the table, and as they lay there enjoying the fellowship of one another in this high Jewish high holy day of the Passover, and everything that brought about it, all the significance of what that represented, the, the unleavened bread part of it was, was uh, significant because they, they prepared bread in their haste to exit Egypt in the Exodus. And, and they had this, 
this uh, everything they had, they had to they had to pre be prepared when they ate the meal, with their shoes on, their loins girded, their clothes on, everything they had prepared to leave in haste. So everything was done in hastily to retreat from Egypt and Exodus Egypt and go out toward the promised land. But now, conversely, they're reclined at the table in a relaxed fashion because they had already left Egypt. And, they, and this, this Passover meal fulfills the requirements in Leviticus 23, verses 4 through 8. But I, I want us to look at something here today. I, I, I felt led to title this message, or entitle this message, A Covenant with Jesus. A Covenant with Jesus. And it comes out of the words that Jesus utters himself, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is my blood of the covenant. So, what is a covenant? I really think today to understand this passage of Scripture, we have to understand what a covenant is. Well, a covenant is an agreement or pledge between two parties, believe it or not. And there are different types of covenants that have various variables, making it a specific type of covenant, but they are basically, according to the Lexian Bible Dictionary, three main covenants. And I believe that if we if we look at our lives even today, thousands of years after the Near Eastern times that we're referencing culture-wise, if we look at our culture today, there are probably still are only three main covenants. There is a, uh, a vassal-type covenant where the subordinate is the one who makes a covenant to swearing an oath to his superior, and those, the, those uh, failure to meet those requirements will result in a punishment. And we can look back in the book of Deuteronomy, and we can see that the nation of Israel agrees to follow what the Lord has instructed them to do, or they will suffer the punishment, divine wrath. There's another type of covenant, a grant-type covenant. And that grant-type covenants are those where the superior party promises an oath to the subordinate party. But the subordinate party is not held. Only the grantor is, is held. And these exist in perpetuity, or perpetual Genesis 12, 3, God tells Abraham that all the nations of the world will be blessed through him. And in Genesis 22, 15 through 18, when we, when we see that, that Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac, his son, up on the mountain, and God provided, and he said, and God tells Abraham, because you listened to me truly, all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. That's a, con a perpetual contract that God made to Abraham that had nothing to do with what Abraham did from then on out. That is a grantor or a grant type of covenant. But there's one other type of covenant, and it's a, a, a third type. And it's a kinship or parity type covenant. And that's where both parties make a pledge. There's reciprocal responsibilities. And it's typically, believe it or not, celebrated by a meal. <laughs> See, they must have been Baptists in the Bible. Because we've all got to eat all the time. But it was celebrated, this, this covenant, this kinship or parity covenant, was celebrated by a, a meal and a covenant type ritual. And if we look at what the Passover or what communion represents, I automatically turn around looking for my stuff, but I know we're not doing it regularly, so forgive me. Uh, but it's celebrated by, by a meal and a covenant type ritual. And what I want us to understand is that. Is that uh, our our communion, our time of communion of, among the saints, is a religious exercise. It's a ritualistic exercise to remind us of the covenant that we made with Jesus Christ. See, Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, 
so that we can have eternal life because John 3.16 tells us that. And it's spoke, spoken many times in the New Testament that for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should have eternal life. But on the flip side of that, our part of the covenant is that we have to believe. And what does that word believe mean? It means our lifestyles will change, will be transformed by the renewing of our mind, like Paul tells us in Romans 12. So this is the background that we are going to talk about a covenant today, a kinship or parity covenant, where two parties make a covenant, a covenant together, and we have both have reciprocal responsibilities. God's responsibility was to do what only he could do and provide to us a sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice that was a perpetual sacrifice for all time. And our part of the agreement is we must choose to accept that or we will go to hell. Period. Case closed. End of sentence. It's a rather unique covenant, don't you think? That we would, we would have this opportunity to commune with our Creator and our Redeemer. And because of our faith, we can be called a friend of God. In verse 26, it says, While they were eating, Jesus took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. We have to talk about a few things here. It says Christ took and broke bread. Well, the taking of the bread and asking a blessing is reminiscent of the Levitical wave offering before the Lord. They took something and they waved it before the Lord and asked for a blessing. Jesus Christ is our high priest. Everybody agree with that? And it says so in the book of Hebrews. He's a high priest of the order of Melchizedek. It means he has a perpetual high priesthood. He is the high priest, the, the foremost high, the preeminent high priest. And as doing that, he's entitled to and has the privilege of offering sacrifices on our behalf. So he took this bread, this piece of whatever bread. Maybe it was a, a, a French baguette with a crispiness. If you hold it to your ear, you can hear it crisp in your ear. Maybe it was a piece of soggy, moldy bread. I don't know. It doesn't really matter. But he took the bread, and he offered it before the Lord and asked a blessing over it. Now, what is that reminiscent of? It's reminiscent of two things. One is it's reminiscent when he fed the 5,000, and there's another account where he fed 4,000 people. And how, how much bread did he have? Five loaves and two fish. Now, remember that because a pastor once told me it's never two Fs. It's never five fish. It's five loaves and two fish. So he had five loaves of bread and two fish. And he took that bread and he asked a blessing over it. And what was significant about that? It didn't run out. It fed everybody. There's a keynote we're going we're to refer back to here in a few moments. But he asked the divine blessing on the events to take place. The breaking of bread, what does that symbolize? It says he took the bread, he asked a blessing, and then after blessing it, he broke it. It signifies the breaking of Christ's body, not that his bones were broken, because not a single bone of his body was broken. But what it signifies is the suffering and pain that he would undergo, the beating he would undergo, the crucifixion on the cross at Calvary that he would undergo for the remission of our sins. The significance about the breaking of the bread represents the breaking of Christ's body, his human body, before us, as a sacrifice to the Lord. We understand that, right? Jesus' body as a human on this earth, he was fully God and fully man, but his sacrifice as a man on this earth being the perfect propitiation for our sins or sacrifice for our sins, that sacrifice didn't 
go to you and me, the sacrifice was made to God. Everybody understand that? He was the sacrificial lamb. The lamb that was led to slaughter. So this, the breaking of the bread represents the breaking of his body, the crucifixion. We must now look back the other, the other side of this. And, and I'm going to go into something here. And I'm going to go into a little bit of a doctrinal platform or soapbox, if you will. Many people around the world, depending on their theological understandings, have made communion, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, into something else. I'm not, I'm not picking on anybody here. I'm just saying, doctrinally speaking, there are three different beliefs when it comes to communion. There's transubstantiation, consubstantiation, and then there's the metaphorical belief of what Jesus said. As Baptists, we believe in the metaphorical side of things. We believe that he used it as a metaphor, a parable to explain the bread and the blood as representative of his body and his blood that was shed on Calvary. So the, the, the bread and the wine represented those two things. In transubstantiation, they believe, and it's more of a Roman Catholic belief today, they believe that the, the actual bread and the wine actually turn into the body and the blood of Jesus Christ once they're ingested. They've been blessed, and from the blessing of from the priest, they, they actually turn into, they transform into person. We don't believe that. The other side of this is consubstantiation. And it, it, it's, it's, a, it, it's from the Lutheran, uh, Episcopalians, um, uh, some of the Reformed theology uh, believe that, they don't believe it necessarily transforms into, but they believe that the, the um, that Christ is present in, under, and around, and with the actual elements. We don't believe that either. We believe, like I said, it's a metaphor. And the reason why we believe it's a metaphor is because this isn't the only time in Scripture, in the Lord's Supper, where Jesus refers to himself as the bread of life. He says in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. And in John 6, 53, Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. What, what we were trying to get across here is the reason we celebrate communion the, re, the way that we do and the reason we believe the way that we believe is because God made this covenant with us on the, the Lord's, when the Lord's Supper was instituted, when communion was instituted, and it wasn't that he was trying to say, this piece of bread is my body, as in literal extension of his flesh, or this blood is a little literal extension of his blood. That's not what he was saying. He was saying it is a metaphor to speak to us in terms that we could understand, that we would take of this and do this in remembrance of him. In shortest terms, to represent the very deity of Christ, we have a lowly piece of bread and a lowly cup of grape juice. That under the context of what we're doing, the heart that we have when we partake of this communion, we're re-signifying the covenant that was done on that day even seven years ago. In verses 27 and 28, he says, And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. And in verse 28, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. This representative of Christ's blood 
is significant. He gave it to them, which means he laid his life down willingly. Because he gave them the bread and he gave them the, the, the wine at that time, or juice today, the reason why that's significant is because he gave it on his own free will and volition. He voluntarily submitted in humility to the will of the Lord. You can go back to Philippians 2 and see that. The picture of humility and love for the Father. And he gives it once and for all. We have to understand that this, this signifies that it doesn't ever run out. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ does not ever run out. It is a contract in perpetuity, which means it never, it never fails. It never stops. He's fulfilled in his end of the bargain for years to come until he comes back. We understand that? 2,000 years this contract has been good, and everybody who was born afterwards still has the opportunity to sign up for that contract. That's the best sales pitch ever in the history of the world right there. And he says, drink from it, all of you. Drink from it, all of you. And other Gospels use some different terminology, but what we can grasp from that is it's for all Christians. Once again, I don't want to pick on, on, on other denominations of Christianity, but it, 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 is, it has been told in the Roman Catholic tradition that when they, when they partake of communion a lot of times, the priest was the only one who would drink. That's not what the Bible teaches. Drink from it, all of you. That means... All Christians can partake of communion, can eat the bread and drink the juice that represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of this contract. There's no restriction other than to be saved, which is why in our Baptist faith and message, which we've adopted as our, our uh, church covenant, if you will, of what we believe and why we believe it, we, believe, we say, and as a Baptist, that you mustn't need to do anything other than profess the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved in order to partake of communion. Now there are some churches who restrict communion to those who are members of that church because that's the only way for sure that they can know, right, that they're saved. But we practice open communion. If you come through these doors right now and you want to partake of communion with us, we have a little plastic cup with some juice and a little uh, stale cracker on top. I'm going to bread on top that you can open up and you can, you can take communion with us. All you got to do is profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But we have to understand the significance of Christ's blood. So we have the body that represents his crucifixion. And what we have also is the blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Hebrews 9.22 says, And according to the law, one may almost say, All things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. If we go back to the Exodus, the book of Exodus and Leviticus, we see that a lot of the times when Moses did something, he cleansed it, he cleansed it by blood. He sprinkled the blood over the people. He sprinkled the blood on the horns of the altar. He rubbed the blood of the sacrificial animal on the, the right earlobe, the right thumb, and the right big toe of the priest to consecrate them, to purify them, to signify God's blessing on them. So the, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. There is no purification. There is no cleansing. That's why it seems so complicated for us to understand, at least for me, because I'm a simple-minded man, that something red can wash me white. Because anybody that knows anything knows that if you pour red wine or red grape juice on a white garment, it's stained forever. But the significance about that is that 
Once we're stained forever with the blood of Christ, we're raised to walk in newness of life. Oh, man, I get chills. So I have a few questions today, and I know this, Billy, you'd be proud. We're going to be short today. I didn't, I didn't even have to take off my watch. So I have a question. Of the three types of covenants, which one did we make? Did God make this grand four type covenant where he made us a deal and we don't have any kind of responsibility in it? Not really. What he made is a kinship covenant with us. Now granted, all our responsibilities we must accept Jesus Christ, but I don't want to oversimplify that because when we accept Jesus, we make him Lord of our lives. Do we understand that we have a need for Christ? And let me explain this need for Christ today. The need for Jesus Christ is very simple. Are you a sinner? And some of us may look back and say, well, no, I'm a pretty good person. The Bible says there is none good, no, not one. Nobody seeks after righteousness. Nobody does. So somebody then might ask, well, what is a sin? Well, have you ever told a lie? Have you ever misrepresented the truth? And if the answer to that question is yes, then I say you're a liar. Well, well don't call me a liar. How many, how many lies does it take to become a liar? One. So they might be satisfied with that. Then somebody else may be so down in their, down in their luck and maybe so feeling so bad for themselves that they murdered somebody. How many murders does it take to become a murderer? One. How many rapes does it take to become a rapist? One. And they may have done some of these most atrocious, atrocious things our society looks at as the most grievous, egregious sins. And you know what? The blood of Jesus Christ can wash it all away. The blood of Jesus Christ can re restore you and renew you. So do we have an understanding that we have a need for Christ because only Jesus Christ can renew us, only Jesus Christ can change us, only Jesus Christ can rearrange us and make us into a new creature, a new person? Do we understand that we have responsibilities? We have the right to claim ourselves as Christians once we accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but do we understand that we have a responsibility to our Lord, to our Savior, to serve Him humbly? I would, never, I would dare say to use the word religiously. We must religiously serve our Lord and our Savior. Not, not as some, uh, some wicked of a, a checklist of events that we must do, but our hearts should be such to transform when Jesus Christ comes to change and rearrange us that when we accept Him as our Lord and Savior, we seek to live the life that we ought to live by this instruction manual that He gives us. And in letters like Paul wrote to the various churches he planted, and in the Old Testament, we combine those things. I posted something on the on Facebook the other day. Rabbi Zacharias was quoted as saying, the reason we have 1,700 pages in our law books is because we fail to follow 10 statements on a, written on a stone. Amen. And if what we would do is we would just take these, these, these things that we learn in the scriptures, it all, even the 10 statements on stone can go back to two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. Sacrificing love, serving him, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus Christ said those are the two greatest commandments. The whole law of prophets, all 613 commandments in the Jewish law can be summarized in two words, in two statements. Love God and love, love, love others. So our responsibility in this covenant is to acknowledge Christ as our Lord and our acknowledgement is not just with our lips, but also with our heart because our heart will give us the motivation to serve Him and only Him. 
The other question I have is, do we understand the significance of what has happened? When we accept Christ, we are claiming His transformation in our lives. We're claiming the fact that He walks with us and He talks with us. There's a hymn that says He walks with me and He talks with me along life's narrow way. You know why it's a narrow way? Because why is the path that leads to destruction narrow is the gate that leads to salvation. It is a narrow path. And you know, it's a lonely path at times. We might feel lonely. We might feel depressed on our pilgrim's progress through our uh, following our Lord Jesus Christ. But we don't ever walk alone because we walk with Jesus. He walks with us. And when we look back at our life, the poem footprints tell us, and we only see one set of footprints in trials and tribulations. It's where Jesus Christ picks us up, and he carries us like he carried a cross on Calvary. Do we make a mockery of what this covenant is by living our lives in sin? James 4, 4 says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We cannot be friends of this world. We must be enemies with the world to be friends with God. We must let go of the lust of the flesh, like Galatians 5 tells us about, and cling to the cross, to what Jesus has done for us. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 through 29, he says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. This is serious business. As we seek to partake of one of the most sacred, the most sacred covenant known to man, we must examine ourselves to find ourselves worthy to partake. I'm going to extend an invitation today. I, I, I would trust and believe that there's nobody here that needs to accept Christ, but I'm going to extend it anyway. Maybe there's somebody here who needs to make themselves right with the Lord, and that's fine too. We're going to take a moment. We're going to offer you a hymn of invitation. For those of you watching at home or wherever you may be, we're going to offer a, a time for you to reflect and meditate on the words spoken today. And I pray that the Holy Spirit, as He moves through the, the sanctuary, He moves, because He's omnipresent, He moves everywhere. That if there's anybody who needs to do business with Jesus before we partake of communion, I pray that we do so. Let's pray together.